Hey, if you would remain standing. Isn't it good to be at Friends tonight? Now, here's what I told our guest speaker. I said, um, this Saturday night service, you guys are, you're the best, okay? You know that, right? You're the best of all three. Uh, and we have a guest speaker. And last night we had over a thousand women here. And it was an awesome event. And the women that came, what a great event we had. But Christy McClellan, she's the teaching pastor at Church of the City in Franklin, Tennessee, where um, half of our church moved, uh, you know, when the pandemic came. So they all probably go there. But she is a professor at Williamson College in Tennessee. She's a biblical culturist. She has authored several Bible studies and being used by God in unique ways. Her study entitled Jesus and Women now been translated into seven languages and the most recent into Hindi. After studying in Egypt, and in Israel, she was mentored by rabbis and she was taught by archaeologists and spent time with people in the culture. She gained a fresh perspective on God's word and tonight she's going to bring it to us. She teaches with great insight and great passion and since she was here last night, we said, why don't you just stay and be here this weekend because Friends Church would love to hear Christy McClellan. Now here's what I told her. We match our name, that we are friends and so she is one of us now. So I want you to give her the biggest welcome of all three services to Christy McClellan as she comes to speak. Friends Church. Happy Saturday evening to you all. Thank you so much. Take a seat. This is my first time ever in Yorba Linda, California. I do send greetings from the half of you that have moved to Franklin, Tennessee. Um, I feel like I'm kind of home right now. A lot of them there have been telling me stories about life here, and I'm so privileged to get to be with and among you all tonight. There's an ancient African proverb that goes like this. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I don't know about you. I don't care to go fast in this life. I do want to go far. I pray for the day that we reach that new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem. And if to get there is to go together, then I'm so privileged to meet some of our brothers and sisters tonight that we get to journey through the scriptures together tonight. The Bible is best experienced more than read, and it's best experienced together. In 2007, the Lord opened up the door for me to go study the Bible in Egypt and Israel, and I tell people that I went to Israel and learned that the living God is better than I ever knew. And I thought he was awesome when I went. And for the last 15 years, I've been taking teams on biblical study trips to Israel. I am a visual learner. I learn by what I see. And tonight, we are going to be talking about Hope Revealed. We are in the month of January, a brand new year, 2023. Raise your hand if you could use a little bit more hope in your life here at the beginning of a year. And so this is what we're going to be biting down together on tonight. This is what we're going to be feasting together on tonight. And I'm always telling my, my students at the college that the first step in Bible study is never to read the Bible. It's always to pray, for us to posture ourselves, to ask the living God to open us wide, to receive the word that he has for us. I want to show you a picture right now. It's my absolute most favorite photo I've ever taken in 15 years of taking teams to Israel. As you can see, it is of a shepherd and his flock. 
and I show it to you now because the greatest metaphor that the Bible uses from Genesis to Revelation to describe the living God and you and me is that of a shepherd with his flock. We are not orphans. We are not the fatherless. We don't have to strive and strain. We don't have to figure everything out. The call of the Christian, the follower of Jesus, is to agree to be led by him. That as he walks, as he's moving in our lives, we agree with him, we step with him, we pause with him, we run with him, we Sabbath with him, that we're trying to keep pace with our shepherd. So I want to begin with just a moment of prayer as the word of God is getting ready to be washed upon us as the living God breaks it down into bite-sized pieces. Tonight, we're going to talk about hope revealed. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we just take a moment to quiet ourselves in your presence. Saturday evening, and Lord, we've said no to everything else to say yes to you and being here. So Father, would you clear the deck for us right now? Would you allow the cares of the world to fall off of us right now? Whatever is pressing us, whatever is stressing us, whatever we're afraid of or anxious about, whatever's going wrong in our lives, Lord, help tonight. For the things that are going well, thank you tonight. But Father, would you show yourself through your word? Would you be faithful to us tonight? I love how the word says your faithfulness, it reaches to the skies. Would you bathe us in your faithfulness tonight? And would you reveal hope to us here at Friends Church in a new way? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to begin tonight with a quote by a man named Walter Brueggemann. He once gave us this. The prophetic task of the church is to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion, to grieve in a society that practices denial, and expresses hope in a society that lives in despair. Hope is actually my word for 2023. Anybody here come up with a word for the year? Raise your hand. I see a few hands out there. And so if hope is going to be my word for this year, I've been doing a deep dive into it. And so I want to begin with what exactly is hope? We hear that word. It sounds lovely to us. I want hope. I have some hope. I want some more hope. But what exactly is hope if hope is going to be revealed for us tonight? And the Hebrew word for hope is the word tikva. Everybody say that with me. Tikva. And it carries the idea of hope, but it also means a cord, like a cord that attaches things. It carries this idea of expectation. We have a woman in the Old Testament, her name was Rahab. She was a Canaanite in a city of Jericho. And we know the story, the Israelite spies come in. Rahab is going to throw something out of her window. It's a scarlet cord, but the word there in Hebrew is the word tikva. Yes, she held out a cord. It ended up saving her entire family when the Israelites came in, but she was also holding out hope. I want to raise this idea for you. I do not believe that hope is an emotion that we carry around in our hearts. Hope is something we're meant to hold in our hands. 
we're meant to walk around this world hoping, courting, attaching ourselves to the living God, to one another as the family of God, seeing the kingdom of God come down to the ground. Hope is not passive. Hope is active. And when we say, well, I just hope it all works out, I think a better way of looking at it is, Lord, I am hoping in this thing, how can I actively participate with you to bring this thing to pass? How many of you want to participate with the living God and seeing heaven come down to earth? So we are a courted people, we're a hopeful people, we're holding hope in our hands. It's active, it moves, it seeks embodiment in this world. And I want to read for you now. For me, one is one of the most hopeful passages in the entire Bible. And we're going to look at it together. It's found in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. If you're still with me, say okay. The word of the Lord says this, And Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Who's feeling hopeful right now? Somebody's like, K-Mac, my friends call me K-Mac. K-Mac, I don't see the hope in that. Well, we're getting ready to walk our way to it. I want to ask you something. When I say the word discipleship, what image comes up in your mind? I say the word discipleship, what comes up for you? I don't know what you are envisioning right now, but I'm going to show you what discipleship looked like 2,000 years ago for Jesus and his disciples. If you'll take a look at this picture, it's lovely, isn't it? We're going to leave this picture up, and I want you to look at it even as I'm talking. Discipleship in Jesus' Jewish world 2,000 years ago was essentially three things. Number one, discipleship is visual. Jesus is looking at something when he's teaching. He can see it. His disciples can see it. We imagine them walking through a field of mustard seed when all of a sudden Jesus says, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like a mustard seed. Second, discipleship in Jesus' world, it is very much on the move. We often learn sitting down with our books and our notebooks and our pens, but not so in Jesus' world. And you wanted to follow so closely to your rabbi that the dust off of his sandals got all over you because you never knew when he was going to start teaching. You don't want his words to fall to the ground. He's on the move, so you're on the move catching his words. Third, Jewish discipleship in Jesus' world was very much communal. You notice it is a group of people walking with their rabbi. What we think of as mentorship, and I have mentors in my life, we're going to keep this, but this one-on-one -on -one model of mentorship, that comes to us via the Greeks, not the Jews. For Jews, discipleship is communal. It's a collective. It is a community unified following their rabbi. And here's where it starts to get gospel gorgeous. Stay with me. 
When you followed a rabbi 2,000 years ago, you didn't just want to know what he knows. You wanted to be just like him. You wanted to be such an icon of him that wherever you are, if your rabbi wasn't there, someone could get a clear representation of who your rabbi was from being in your presence. We talk about WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's a great question for us as followers of Jesus who want to be just like him. Now, 2,000 years ago in Jesus' world, People chose their rabbis, the lesser reached for the greater. You would walk around, you would listen to different rabbis and their teachings, and when you found one that you thought had the correct interpretation of the scriptures, you would ask him if you could follow him and be one of his disciples. Jesus comes on the scene 2,000 years ago, a holy rabbi of Israel, and he starts doing the choosing. All of a sudden, the greater starts reaching down for the lesser, and he is walking around the Galilee, and he's saying, hey, you right there, I think you can be just like me. Come follow me. Come walk with me. Come take on my yoke. Now, let's be clear about what this would have felt like 2,000 years ago. By the way, who loves Jesus already? Just a little bit for that. But this would be like Michael Jordan in his prime driving down your street, watching you shoot free throws in your driveway and saying, hey, you look like you could be a really good basketball player. I think you can be as good as me. Come play with me in the Chicago Bulls. How many of you would have done that? Like just left your whole life. I see that hand right here. You just got to take that adventure. It'd be like Tiger Woods in his prime watching you on a driving range and saying, man, you've got a great swing. I think you can play golf just like me. Come play golf with me. How many of you would have done that? K-Mac would have done that. I see your wife helped you on that one. She like raised your hand for you. This is a little bit of what this would have felt like. Jesus is coming on the scene and he's saying, I think you can be just like me. Come follow me. And we begin to understand a little bit of what it looks like for hope to be revealed. Now we understand some words of Jesus in red given at the Last Supper. In John chapter 15 verse 16, he says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So Jesus comes on the scene, he's choosing people, the greater is reaching for the lesser, and if he's choosing people that are going to go bear fruit and fruit that will last, the next question becomes, who did he choose? Because surely he's going to choose the smartest, the fastest, the best. Surely he's going to pick the cream of the crop to participate in the tikkun olam, the repair of the world where we're on our way to seeing hope revealed. And let's go back to our list in Matthew 10 and let's have some fun together. If you're still with me, say okay. Matthew 10 verse 1. Jesus called, everybody say chose. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother, Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, 
John. Now let's just stop and pause right there because two brothers are going to get mentioned, James and John. Now they were given a nickname. They were given a nickname by Jesus. Does anybody remember what it is? Sons of Thunder. And the question becomes, where did they earn this nickname, the Sons of Thunder, James and John? And the answer lies in Luke chapter 9. Now before we read it, just to set this up for you, the highest honorable virtue in Jesus' Jewish world 2,000 years ago was hospitality. It's the ring that ruled them all, for those of you that have seen Lord of the Rings. If you want to be honorable in Jesus' world, you are a hospitable person. You're a person of welcome. Therefore, if you deny hospitality, that's very shameful in that world. And to deny hospitality to somebody in Jesus' world 2,000 years ago, you might as well have punched them in the face. It's a diss. It's a rejection. It's a pushing away. It's very shameful in that world. And when we pick up our story in Luke chapter 9, the Jews and the Samaritans have been at odds for 700 years. Can you imagine being mad at somebody for 700 years? A seven-century beef between the two. And here's where we get our Sons of Thunder story. Luke chapter 9 verse 51 says this. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. Everybody go, uh-oh. But the people there did not welcome him. Everybody go, uh-oh. Because he was heading for Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Now, stop and pause. I have so many questions about this moment. First of all, they asked that question like they believe they can do it. I'm like, had they tried before? I mean, when was the last time you didn't get invited to somebody's birthday party and you decided you were going to call your friends and you all were going to get together and just go burn their house to the ground? <laughs> this is this kind of moment. I love the very next line in this story, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. I want to know what that sounded like. Hey, guys, we're not here to burn villages to the ground. I'm here to save the world, not destroy it. But from this moment, they're going to earn the nickname given by Jesus of the sons of thunder. If you want to know who Jesus is and what he's like when he's choosing people to follow him that he believes can become just like him because transformation happens in his presence, he'll choose sons of thunder. Do we have any sons of thunder here tonight? Anybody with road rage? I went to L.A. today. I don't know how y'all do it. <laughs> Jesus takes us as we are. He knows that change comes in his presence. 
Let's go back to our list in Matthew chapter 10. Let's pick it up. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. I want to talk just briefly about tax collectors and zealots because of the 12, one is a tax collector. His name is Matthew or Levi. And the other is a zealot by the name of Simon. They are on the opposite ends of the political structure 2,000 years ago. Tax collectors, think Zacchaeus, they are Jews who are collaborating with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is taxing the people. Tax collectors would come along. They were often dishonest. They would add to it. If Rome wants 50%, they'll tax you 52%. They pocket the 2%, often wealthy through ill-gotten gain. They functioned like a dishonest IRS 2,000 years ago. Anybody here love the IRS? And Matthew was a tax collector. On the opposite side, you have the zealots. They believe that the kingdom of God would come with the sword. They are red-blooded, hot-headed. They're fighters. There was even a branch of zealots known as the Sicarii, and they were assassins. They walked around with little knives with a hook, cloaked, and they would kill Romans or collaborators with Romans like tax collectors and what they would do is they would walk up to someone, pull out their knife, they would stab a person, turn it, puncturing the heart, pull it back out, cloak it and be gone. They are assassins in that world. And we read that Jesus chose Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. If you want to know who Jesus is and what he's like when he is walking through this earth looking for people to be his disciples and his followers, he will choose a tax collector and a zealot. I often imagine what Matthew and Simon's relationship looked like. I often envision Matthew sleeping with one eye open. He always wants to know where Simon is. I envision Simon just punching him in the back of his head while they're walking down the road. How in the world did Jesus bring peace between those two men to be two of the twelve? But I hope you're starting to feel just a little bit more hopeful because if Jesus is choosing sons of thunder, tax collectors, and zealots to follow him, you and I have a chance. Just look to your neighbor and say, you might get in. <laughs> look to your other neighbor and say, you might get in too. This is good news for us who are trying to live honest in our own lives, in our own skin. Now I'm getting ready to show you a moment in the Gospel of Mark. This is something that stuck out to me for the first time ever this past year and I've not been able to shake it and I want to raise it for you now. But I actually want to do it in a really tender way. So I am a visitor, I am from Tennessee, I fly home tomorrow night. But I want to invite you in this moment, you're not going to share it with anybody. I want you to feel safe and I want you to be able to be honest. What is the thing about you or the thing in your story that makes you feel the most shame? Maybe something that's happened to you. 
maybe something that you've done in your past, maybe there's something about you, this would be that chapter that you don't read out loud. Maybe you've only told a few people in your life about it. Maybe you've never told anyone at all. But I want you to think about what is that thing for you. That thing that if it got put up on one of these big screens, you would feel great shame. And I think the Bible is getting ready to answer for us what Jesus does when he sees us in those places. What is Jesus like when he walks up to us in the middle of the parts of our story that give us our deepest feelings of shame? I want you to look at this passage with me in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. It's sort of a new thing for me. But the Bible says this, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, everybody say Matthew, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus, a holy rabbi of Israel, is walking around the Galilee and he sees Matthew doing the shameful thing. He is at the tax collector's booth being a tax collector in that world. Tax collectors were rendered perpetually unclean. They could never go to temple because they handled pagan money with images on it that rendered them unclean. The tax collector can't get into temple. And what is Jesus going to do when he sees Matthew doing the shameful thing? Is he going to walk up to him and judge him? Is he going to walk up to him and exile him? Is he going to walk up to him and put him on blast? No. The Bible goes on to say he sees him sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi, everybody say Matthew, got up and followed him. I raise this for you. Because too often we are Christians who believe that it's our good foot that we put forward that might make Jesus invite us to follow him. But the Bible seems to be telling us that Jesus is trying to come to us in the most shameful parts of our story and history and say, I see you there. I see all of you here. And my response is, come follow me. Come be with me. You can be just like me. You'll be transformed as you walk with me. I don't know about you, this is hopeful stuff for me. It's really making me think about how I see and view my relationship with Jesus. And I want to ask you a question at this point in our time together what if the seed of the kingdom lies in your wound and not your strength? What if the seed of the kingdom of God actually lies in your wound and not your strength? Jesus is not afraid of you. 
Jesus isn't afraid of the most hurtful, shameful parts and places, those things that you don't like to look at that are hard to reckon, hard to integrate, hard to bring in. These are the very places where he is seeking to come. You know, there was a quote that I read about 18 months ago, and it hit me so powerfully it put me in therapy. I was living my life, going along, traveling a lot. COVID did a number on us. Now, let me be clear, in Tennessee, we sort of treated COVID like the flu. Everybody, in a lot of ways, just kept it moving. But I came across this quote during that time. I was grounded. I couldn't go to Israel. I was missing it. It's a quote by a man named Joseph Campbell, and he wrote this. The cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. The cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. And when I read that quote, I could immediately name my cave. And if I thought, if I can name my cave so clearly, it's probably time for a deeper work of healing and restoration in my life. And I started therapy. Fourth time in my lifespan that I've been to therapy. Went some in my 20s, twice in my 30s, now this season of it in my 40s. And one day I was walking my dog Chester through my neighborhood and there's a little older lady in my neighborhood and she knows who I am somehow, maybe social media or something, but every time I see her, I know we're going to have a conversation. And she can get a little bit nosy, but I don't freak out because I know I can outrun her if I need to. And so one day I'm out walking my dog and here she comes and I know we're going to interact and I'm feeling kind of safe and open. I'm in therapy doing that deeper work. And she stops me and she's like, oh, Chrissy, how are you doing? What's going on? And I was like, well, you know what? I've actually gotten back into therapy. It's my fourth time kind of going. And she looked right at me and she goes, oh, honey, what's so wrong with you? It's taken four times. <laughs> she does not have the gift of encouragement. And I have to say, you know the shame I felt in that moment? Because, right, what is so wrong with me that it's taken four times? I recognized her voice because I have a thousand versions of that that happen in my own head and heart. It's been a journey for me learning that Jesus isn't just looking from my best foot forward. He's coming for both of my feet. He's coming for all of me and all of my story. And he looks at me in the full reality of who I am, the sum total of my life. And he says, Chrissy, I see all of you. Follow me. I think you can be just like me. Have you ever known Jesus in those places in your life and story? Have you known that he's the one that will walk right up to you in it? You know, when I was studying in Israel, there was a phrase that I kept hearing. It has stayed with me for 15 years, and I want to bless you with it today. I want to give it to you today, and it goes like this. 
the living God meets us right where we are, he never leaves us there. The living God meets us right where we are. He never leaves us there. I want to ask you right now, January 2023, where are you? Where are you today? What's going on in your life right now that you need hope? You need to be courted to Jesus, hoping your hands in a deeper way. What's the truth of what's going on in your life right now? Because the thing that I feel like I've been learning lately is hope is not an emotion. More than anything, hope is a man. His name is Jesus. If you want a deeper hope, it'll come through a closeness and a proximity to the one whose voice sees you in your fullness and calls you to come follow him. The parts of you that you think are scary, Jesus does not think they're scary. He wants to put his hands on those places in your life, not to kill you, judge you, or smite you, but to heal, to restore, to bring those parts of you out of shadow into light, into renewal, redemption, restoration. Maybe there's some things that you've let die all together and he wants to work a resurrection in your life on some things. What are the places where you need a deeper hope? Now I want us to end our time together as far as me being up here with you in a very ancient and Jewish way. If we could go back 2,000 years ago to a synagogue with Jesus, you always stood for the scriptures, you stand for God's word, you sit for man's word. So I want to invite you all to stand with me right now. And we are getting ready together to read out loud. The passages are going to be on the screen for us. But this is one of my favorite Jesus passages in the Bible. It's found in Colossians chapter 1. And I want us as the body of Christ, Tennessee, California, to find our outside voices right now. Because we are not only going to read this out loud, we're going to proclaim this together out loud. So look to your neighbor and say, get your mind right for this. And we're getting ready to confess and profess this in the earth. And the reason I'm ending on this is this is the one who's calling you. This is the one who's coming to you face to face and saying, I see every bit of you and I want you to come follow me. I think you can be just like me. Walk with me transformation will come in my presence so we're getting ready to read Colossians 1 15 through 20 we're gonna say it then we're gonna sing it together I need to know are y'all ready to go with me say K Mac let's go let's do this this is the one who's calling us this is the one inviting us to follow him Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 and 20 outside voices here we go 
The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Yeah.